Well, it is great to be back with you guys this week, and before I get started, I want to give a big shout out to Donnie Peters last week. I listened to the message, and as he talked about the importance of finishing strong as we wrapped up our Future Tense uh, series, and I tell you why that meant so much to me, it's because of this. I mean, regardless of whether or not Jesus returns in our lifetime, by the way, aren't you ready for him to return? I mean, don't you feel like, John, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly right now, right? That may not happen, but one day as Christians, as we learn in this series, we're all gonna stand before Jesus Christ and we're gonna give an account of how we lived our life, how we invested our time, our talent, our treasure in, in, for the kingdom. And every one of us, I guarantee you, at the end of the day, we wanna hear him say, well done. You did a good job. You were a faithful servant. But see, that for that to happen, you're gonna have to finish strong. And so we, I appreciate the way Donnie talked about that. Next week, actually, I'm starting a series on the life of one of my favorite characters in the Bible. It's the life of Elijah. And we're actually gonna learn from some different stories in his life how God builds character, how he builds that metal in us. He gives that strength so that we can take a stand, maybe when no one else is taking a stand. But see, you need this kind of stuff if you're gonna finish strong. And we'll start that next weekend. Uh, but this week's a special week. Uh, typically in November, we have a Sunday night where we all gather at one campus together and we have some great worship and it's crazy good. And, and then we share vision and we talk about the next year, but because of COVID, uh, we can't get together like we used to. And so this weekend, I'm gonna take advantage of having you as an audience here, having you as an audience at home. And I wanna talk about some things that God is doing here, some shifting that God is doing uh, in the hearts of those of us who are in leadership and maybe some directions that God is going to be taking us. And I wanna start this weekend by just reminding you that as, as followers of Jesus Christ, our, our job is pretty clear. I mean, it's pretty simple what we've been called to do. We've been called to follow Jesus and his example. We've been called to be imitators of Christ. In other words, how Jesus lived his life, we're supposed to live our life. Now, this is the problem. I think a lot of us, we kind of have this perspective of Jesus that when he was on the earth, he just kind of went around from village to village, city to city, you know, preaching really, really good messages. And when he wasn't doing that, maybe every once in a while he would come across someone and he would heal them. But he'd move on and he spent a lot of time in a small group with a group of guys that we call disciples because he's preparing them to take over. And so we kind of have that image of Jesus. But I got to tell you, Jesus spent the majority of his time not going around teaching, not even discipling the disciples. Jesus spent the majority of his time ministering to hurting people, broken people, messed up people, sinful people. In other words, Jesus spent most of his time with screwed up people like us. That's what he invested his time doing. In fact, in one of his very first sermons, Jesus says, listen, I didn't come to this earth just to preach the gospel, although that was a certainly important part of why he came. He said, I came to this earth to heal the brokenhearted. I came to this earth to minister to those who are oppressed. I came to this earth to set the captives free. And if you read the New Testament, you discover that's what Jesus did. For example, in Matthew chapter 11, it says he exalted the lowly. Mark chapter five, he released the captives. In Luke chapter four, he comforted those who were in prison. Luke chapter 15, he hung out with the misfits. Luke chapter 23, he forgave the criminal. Luke chapter 24, he consoled those who were mourning. John chapter two, remember, he met a woman at the well and he gave water to a thirsty woman. John chapter six, there was a multitude that was hungry and Jesus fed them. And John 21, after the disciples had deserted them, he, he, he restored those who had fallen. Romans chapter four says he suffered for the sake of his people. And Romans chapter five says, you know what? He died in our place. And so the Bible makes it very, very clear that Jesus was actively involved while he was on this earth ministering to hurting people, broken people. But see, that was just the beginning because Jesus knew that he was gonna have three years of public ministry. During that three years of, of time, he was going to invest. He was going to pour into these men that he had called together. We know them as his disciples. And basically, Jesus knew, I'm leaving, but you're staying. 
And so when you get to John chapter 14, it's right before Jesus is arrested. It's right before he's taken to the cross. He knows that he's gonna die. He's gonna be placed in a tomb. Three days later, he's gonna come back from the dead. 40 days later, he's gonna ascend back the Father. But he's got a little bit of time to instill in these followers how they're going to carry on the mission after he's gone. So he gets to John chapter 14, verse 12, and this is what Jesus says to them. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. So basically, Jesus is saying there, I am commanding you to follow my example of extending compassion, extending mercy, extending grace. In other words, we can't just sit around and talk about compassion. We have to demonstrate compassion. We can't just sit around and talk about grace and what it looks like in people's lives. We have to extend grace. We can't just sit around and talk about what it would look like to be merciful. We have to extend mercy. And that's why as you continue on through the New Testament, you'll discover that the members of these early New Testament churches, guess what they did? They went on and exhibited the same kind of compassion, the same kind of grace, the same kind of mercy that Jesus exhibited. For example, Acts chapter six, they took care of the widows. They looked around their community and they said, we have widows here and their needs aren't being met. Somebody needs to take care of the widows and they determined that's our job as church. Acts chapter nine, they forgave the criminal. Acts chapter 11, guess what they did? They fed those who were hungry. They hung out those who were the misfits. Acts chapter 16, they comforted the imprisoned. They released the captive. John, Acts chapter 20, uh, they consoled people who were mourning. You get to 1 Corinthians chapter one, they exalted the lowly. 2 Corinthians chapter two, you find them involved in restoring those who have fallen. Colossians chapter one tells us they suffered for the sake of God's people. Sound familiar? What were they doing? They were following the example of Jesus. They were being imitators of Jesus Christ. It, my point is simply this. It is pretty clear that from early on, the church, from its conception, was involved in ministering to hurting people, to a hurting world. And that mission has never changed. So that has to be our mission here at Hope, at Hope as well as it was in the New Testament in these churches. We've got to minister to hurting people. And it's not enough just to teach the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Yeah, part of our job, our primary job, is to make sure people hear the gospel. That's why you often hear us say, we, we need to make sure that every man, woman, child that listens to Hope Online, that, that falls within our reach in the community, in the triangle, that every man, woman, and child has multiple opportunities to hear the gospel, see the gospel, opportunities to respond to the gospels. But at the same time, we also have to address uh, with our actions the hurts and the needs that we bump up against every day. Now, let me just say something here, coming off an election. For the church, that's our job. Just so you know, that's not the government's job. For example, the church, not the government, is commanded to feed the hungry. The church, not the government, is commanded to provide shelter and clothing to those who are needy. The church, not the government, is commanded to take care of the sick, take care of those who are in prison, minister to those who are in prison. The church, not the government, is commanded to bring restoration to lives that are broken. Think about that. It's our job. And I Googled this week and I found out, guess what, there are over 400,000 gospel-centered, gospel-based churches in America, 400,000. Well, if you do the math, you quickly learn that there's about 8,000 in every state on average. Let me ask you a question. 
Do you think the, North, the state of North Carolina, do you think it would look differently? Do you think it would feel differently if there were 8,000 churches and those people who make up those churches in North Carolina feeding the hungry, providing shelter and clothing to those who are in need, taking care of the sick, being involved in prison reform, bringing restoration to lives that are broken? Of course it would be different. But we've kind of punted. We've given the government that responsibility. That was never as God intended it. In fact, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and we were smoking a cigar and we were philosophizing and we were talking about different things and, and I brought up this point that it's, this, this is what the church was called to do. And he listened to me and this is a mature Christian. He's a mature Christian individual. You know, he's been around Hope for a long time. And when we finished the conversation, he says, Mike, I, I, yeah, I, that sounds great, but that's just not the way it works in the real world. And I'm gonna tell you something. That's part of the problem. We've decided it doesn't work that way. And so as a result, the church, for the most part, has lost its influence of, of light and salt in our community. We've punted to the government. We've accepted the fact as Christians, it's our job to be nice, to be kind, never offend anyone, pay our taxes, and let the government take care of everything. But that's not the way God designed it. And so here's the question I think that we have, to, we have to struggle through. What are you doing to be a part of the solution to change the world? So you gotta start there. What are you doing to be a part of the solution to change? And if you're saying, hey, I just voted, wrong answer, eh. wrong answer. As a Christian, what are you doing to be a part of the solution to change the world? Now, let me tell you, I know this for a fact. Wherever you start, it starts with compassion. Because see, if there's no compassion, <laughs> there is no action. You gotta understand that. But here's the problem I think all of us as Christians face, especially when it comes to this area of compassion, extending mercy and grace. And I realized this last week. I can convince myself that I'm a compassionate person because every once in a while, I have a compassionate feeling. You ever have a compassionate feeling? Someone's telling you their story, maybe it's a hard luck story, maybe they've had a loss, and how do you respond? You know, and you're thinking, I'm a compassionate person. I got a compassion, I just had a compassionate feeling. I'm compassionate. See, I was able to go to Mexico last week. By the way, go to Mexico. There's nobody there. It's beautiful. <laughs> nobody in customs going, nobody in customs getting back. I mean, it's just a beautiful place to go and nobody when you get there. But there's a bunch of us and we had bought something at an auction. We were raising money for our church down in Haiti, the Hope for Haiti Foundation. And we bought a week at this resort we thought we'd never use. And, we planted about a year ago and we all went. And I tell you what, don't ever go on vacation with three other elders. That is no way to have a good time. But anyway, we're, we're down in Mexico. And, uh, and I tell you, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. However, you still have to get from the airport to the resort. And as I was sitting in the back of that van with all of us piled in there, going to the resort and going back to the airport afterwards, you could see the hurt. You could just see the devastation of poverty and disease and children that were dirty and you could tell malnourished and you just naturally have those feelings of compassion. Here's the problem. We can feel compassion, but that doesn't mean we're gonna do anything about it. But this is what I've learned about life. If something's really important to us, we act on it. See, if it's really important for you that your kid plays soccer and is a good soccer player, you'll have them at practice every day. You may even get them a personal coach. You'll put a net in the backyard. You'll spend time with them because it's important to you. 
If their education is important to you, you'll make sure that that gets taken place. If your health is important to you, you're not just gonna watch videos or read books about health. You're probably gonna get on a healthy diet. You're probably gonna exercise. Maybe you're gonna get a physical every year. But if there's something that's important on you, to you, you act on it. And in the same way, see, if you're really going to show compassion, guess what it involves? This will shock you. It, involve, it involves actually getting face-to-face and in the lives of real people. Do you know what that takes? It takes real time. It takes real energy. It takes real money. Often it will take real sacrifice. And I'll let you in on a secret. People aren't gonna always say thank you. And there are gonna be times when you extend yourself into a situation, you guess what, you're gonna get ripped off. And it's probably gonna get a little messy because it's gonna be real life. And I think that's why as Christians, it's just so tempting for us just to settle for having a a compassionate thought or a compassionate feeling every once in a while, but never actually getting around to doing anything. But you gotta understand when the writers of the Bible made commandments about being compassionate, they weren't talking about just feeling a certain way. They, They were talking about doing something. I mean, it was a call to action. Let me give you an example. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people but love your neighbor as yourself. That sound familiar? Yeah, where have you heard that before? See, that became a primary part of what Jesus taught. Look what it says, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. There it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. By the way, there, there, there's another interesting statement. Do you guys like to read the book of Leviticus? You should. There's some good stuff in Leviticus, okay? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33. Look at this. When a foreigner resides among you in your land. It's interesting. This Hebrew word translated foreigner is the exact same word we would use here in America to describe someone who's an immigrant. It refers to someone who's from another culture. It refers to someone who speaks another language. And so it says in verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. And then there was another statement I found in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 35. It says this, if any of your fellow Israelites, so now you're talking about fellow citizens, If any of your fellow citizens become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so that they can continue to live among you. I mean, this is precisely the same idea of Leviticus 19 verse 18 where it says love your neighbor as yourself. However, here the word love isn't used. Here the word help is used. Well, what does the word help mean in the Hebrew? Well, this will shock you. It means to expend energy. It means to give assistance. So understand, when the Bible talks about loving people and helping people and meeting the needs of people, it doesn't mean that you have warm and fuzzy feelings when you think about them. Fundamentally, it means you help them. Fundamentally, it means you do something. See, it's not just enough to fill something. To be be a game changer, to change someone's life, you actually have to do something. So again, come back to the question, what are you doing? Or let's think of it this way. What are we doing as a church to change the world? In fact, the real question this weekend may be, what provisions have we made as a church to make sure that we're practicing compassion? 
are we building it into our lifestyle as a church? Is it as important as our weekend get-togethers? Is it as important as our small groups? Is it as important as our kids' ministry? Is it a part of the fabric of who we are as a church? Is it in our DNA? Now, let me tell you why this is so important. If you've been around Hope for a while, you know that our strategy, our mission statement is love people where they are, encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, but our strategy has always been to reach the triangle and change the world. What do we mean by that? Well, we realize we live in an area where people from all over the world come here to get some of the best education you can get in the planet, to work for some of the best companies you can work for. They come from China, they come from India, they come from all over the world. And so we have the opportunity, while they are living here among us in the triangle, to make sure they have an opportunity to be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Chances are they're not gonna stay here. They're gonna go to New York. They're gonna go to California. Maybe they're gonna go back to their homeland. But they're gonna go. But wherever they go, they're gonna go. I mean, like free missionaries. They're gonna take the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're gonna tell people how Jesus Christ changed their life. And so if we can reach the triangle with the gospel, it can have a ripple effect across the whole world. Now, the platform that we've used for doing that in the past has been starting campuses. And uh, I remember when we filled up the Raleigh campus and we thought, man, we just built it. And now we got Sunday services that are packed and we got Saturday services. Do we sell it? Do we build another campus? And this was when it was just getting popular to, our, to, to start planning satellite campuses. And so we started doing that. And when you start a satellite campus, it's pretty simple. You identify a group of people that are coming from a community. For example, when we were full at Raleigh, we, we decided, man, we have a large contingency of people, families living out in Holly Springs who are commuting 20 to 25 minutes to Raleigh for church. Why don't we find a place in Holly Springs, let them stay there, and then they can more effectively reach their community. And so we found Holly Springs High School and we, we started our first campus. It's a great idea and it works, but here's the problem with it. When you launch campuses like that, guess who we predominantly reach? We predominantly reach people that are just like us, see? Because that's who we are, and that's who our neighbors are. And that's okay because it's work for us, you know? But then that's the problem. And so during this year and during this pandemic and through all these racial tensions and everything that's been going on, God just, just slowly through circumstances and just speaking to me and just reading things like I just read in Leviticus, God just began to lay on my heart, man, I think it's time for a paradigm shift. In other words, instead of just going and starting campuses and reaching people where we've already reached people, there's not a whole lot of risk involved in that. It's relatively safe. What instead of just doing that, what if we started to intentionally target communities where we don't have a presence? I mean, we're literally, there, there is no hope. I mean, seriously. <laughs> if we can go all the way to the Central African Republic and start churches that change entire villages, if we can go to Uganda and build worship centers and sponsor orphans so that a country can be changed, if we can go to Haiti and start a campus that reaches about 1,500 people every weekend that's developing young leaders that'll be leaders in Haiti that, that were involved in orphans and lives. Let me ask you a question. Why can't we do that in our own community? And I'll tell you, part of the answer is fear. And it's, it's an interesting fear. It's a fear of failure because we've been so good and so successful at what we've done. I'll never forget when we, when we started meeting with the consultant about planning campus, he says, Mike, just so you know, I don't want you to be freaked out. No church ever goes from two campuses to three campuses without having one of those campuses fail. Well, guess what? We have five campuses and none of them have ever failed. 
God has been extremely good to Hope Community Church. And so in a sense, you're like, well, listen, if it ain't broke, why would you fix it? Why would you change it? Well, you might change it because it's not doing exactly what you need it to do. See, maybe we've reached our Jerusalem and Judea, but I'm not sure we've reached our Samaria. We've done a pretty good job of reaching the uttermost parts of the earth, but our Samaria is at our doorstep. We haven't done a very good job with our Samaria. And for that to happen, it's gonna have to, there's gonna have to be a paradigm change. And I'll be honest, when I even talk about this, these are some things I know it'll be harder. Because it's a lot easier to, to have several hundred people in a community and you start a campus there and then go into an area where maybe you have no one and you have to start from scratch. I started Hope Community Church from scratch. I'll take several hundred people every time. <laughs> so I know it's gonna be harder. I know it's gonna be costly because some of the communities that God has laid on my heart, they're not gonna be able to pay for this. And there's gonna be a sense of mess. It's new territory. We're gonna be facing things that are outside of our wheelhouse. We'll figure it out, we'll learn it, but initially it could be a little messy. But this is what I believe God wants us to do. And this is why I know it's God's plan because when the elders talk about this, by the way, there are nine elders that represent Hope Community Church. I'm one of them, I'm not even the chairman of the board. The rest of them, they're all volunteers. I'm the only staff person. But when we got together, it took about a three minute conversation to realize this is what God wants us to do. And then we met with the finance team because we have to get them involved because it's gonna cost us money. And within about two minutes, the people sitting around that table says, this is what God wants us to do. So we started looking for a, a place in Garner. You know, we have a campus we started in Garner High School. Uh, obviously, we lost it because of COVID. We don't know if we'll ever be allowed as a church back into Garner High School. We don't know how long it could take. And so we thought we gotta find a permanent home for our Garner campus. That's what started, but then we found a facility. And it's right on the Garner Southeast Raleigh border. It was a closed down Kmart, 170,000 square feet. And we began to think, what could we do here? And why do we need to do this? Let me just give you a few statistics. If you live in Kerry, okay, um, your median household income is $101,000 a year. Apex, $105,000 a year. Holly Springs, $105,000 a year. Fuquay, we gotta get our act together. We're only $74,000 a year. The median household income in Garner, just Garner, is $61,000 a year. 10.5% poverty rate, twice the rate of Cary, Apex, Holly Springs, where we typically plant campuses. But let me, let me give you some statistics about Southeast Raleigh down the South Park area where we already do some ministry. 75% of the people who live there rent. The median income is $36,000 per household, which is $70,000 less than Holly Springs, Cary, or Apex. But this is the one that grabbed me. 36% of the residents have no high school diploma. And I thought, oh. We can continue to go all over the world, and we will. But we have needs right here in our Samaria that we have a responsibility to address. And so what's it gonna look like? Well, first of all, there'll be a campus. We do believe everything begins and ends with the gospel. God has to change the fabric of mankind's heart before we can begin to change mankind. So we will have a campus there, but that's just the first step. I think education is huge. 
I, I, I told you guys, I grew up very poor. I grew up on Austin Avenue in Durham. Um, it's a war zone these days. You wouldn't dare go over there this time of the evening. But that's where I grew up, uh, right on the corner of Austin Avenue and Andrew Avenue, three houses down from the train trestle. Most of my life, my mom worked in a cigarette factory. My dad was a machinist his whole life. But you know what I got a chance to do that no one else, as the first person ever in my family, I got a chance to go to college. I went to a predominantly African-American high school. Most of my classmates had no opportunity to do, but I had a chance to go. Do you know why? We weren't rich, but I had two parents at home, and they were both working. And then my dad took another job as a meat cutter for 12 hours every Saturday. And every day I was in college till I got married, I went to work at 11 o'clock at night, worked at 2 o'clock in the morning as a janitor. Often I had to get up at 5 o'clock or 5.30 in the morning to study. Some mornings during basketball season, I had basketball practice a couple of mornings a week at 5.30. But I did that every day. But because, see, if you work hard, I learned you can get an education and it could be life-changing. And I want to provide an academy right there we're young people who would never have this opportunity. And just like we do in Toto, we provide sponsorships so kids who want to work hard and parents who are committed to the education process. One of our board members is the president of a college here in the area. We have the PLAs to help us understand how do we do this academy in such a way that every young person that goes through it has the opportunity to change their life through the power of education, through the power of the gospel. And then, just as they do with Watoto, we plant in them, we encourage them. Now, when you get out, when you get a degree, when you get established in the, in the community, would you consider coming back to your community and putting back in and rebuilding this community from the inside out? So it's gonna start there. Not only that, we're committed to job training and skill development. We have so many thousands of people at Hope, so we have so many resources. We would like to train young men and women to be welders, to be auto mechanics, to be carpenters, to be brick masons, secretarial skills. We have the ability to do that. And then this is what's so cool. Across our campus, we have thousands of people who have thousands of businesses and work in thousands of places. What if we all just got used to the fact that when you needed an employee, this is the first place you came to look for an employee? and we started providing jobs for a community. It's an opportunity for us to minister to the homeless. I talked to a friend of mine who's a dentist. He's interested in opening up a practice there that can meet the needs of people in the community that don't typically have the insurance or the means to even have proper dental treatment. Let me tell you another reason I believe this is a God thing. Man, I love this church. We were... I don't know why I cry so much lately. <laughs> I think I'm tired. But I'll, I'll never forget sitting in that a room with my executive team when we came to the reality, we gotta shut down church. And in those days, we thought two weeks, we'll be open by Easter, worst case scenario. And we had no idea what we were in for, but as I was walking out to my car that day, See, I'm a pastor, and every pastor in America is lying if he says he doesn't think the first thing, what's gonna happen to the church financially? We have buildings to pay for, we have staff to pay for, we have responsibilities, what's gonna happen? And I thought, man, I gotta get the list of the top two, 300 givers, and I gotta call every one of them, and I gotta tell them how important it is that they give. And I wasn't quite as concerned as the average church because, hey, if you're watching online in 26 years here at Hope, we've never passed an offering plate. I mean, we, people give because they choose to. But as I was getting in my car, it's as if God said to me, Mike, won't you let me handle this one? And you may recognize that during this whole COVID shutdown, not one time have we asked you to give. We've shared you some stories of where your investment is going, but not one time have we asked for money. Not one time have we 
push the panic button. And let me tell you what God has done. Since the first day of this year as a church, we've been operating in the black. Not only that, in a year of COVID, we have had the best giving year financially we have had in 26 years. We are 10% over budget of what we even needed this year. I mean, if you don't think that's a God thing, <laughs> but here's the other side of the story. You want, you want a silver lining to COVID? Have you been trying to find one? Here it is. We haven't been spending anywhere near what we had planned to spend this year. We're not running utilities and buildings and shuttles and all those things. So we have saved money we had never planned on. So you take the money that has come in extra and the money that we've saved, we're like, okay, God, what, what do you want us to do with it? This is what God wants us to do with it. See, God was setting us up for success. And so we found this building. And we talked to them. They said, $10 million, you ought to be able to have it. And we talked to the board and the finance committee, and they're like, let's do it. Mike, can you raise some money? Sure. Anyway, and so let's do it. So we go, we make a $10 million offer, and they said, nah, probably 12 and a half will do it. We didn't have as much peace over that. So we pulled back a little bit. By the way, let me just say this. If you got $12.5 million lying around, this is in an area that's known as an opportunity zone. Let me tell you why it might be a good investment for you. You can buy this building for hope. We will lease it from you. We will upfit it. At the end of 10 years, we will buy it from you, whatever it's worth. And guess what? In 10 years, because it's the opportunity zone, you don't have to pay any capital gain taxes. Some of you are thinking, honey, how much do we have? Oh, we only have $62. Okay, but, but, but anyway. Hey, if you're interested, give me a call. But anyway, my point is this is where God's leading us, see. This doesn't mean we won't continue to start campuses like in Fuquay. Right now, we're talking to a church that, unfortunately, during COVID, they have a beautiful, huge facility that is paid for, but they're gonna lose everything. And so right now, we're in the middle of talking to them. They're like, can we be a Hope Campus? Can you just like come take over? So we're, we're gonna continue to do those things. But I want you to know, this, this is the paradigm shift where, that we're going, you know. We're gonna go to communities that are broken. We're gonna go to communities where there's a sense of despair. We're gonna go to communities where there's a sense of hopelessness. And I'm gonna tell you what, government's never gonna be able to do what God is gonna do through you at Hope Community Church. I'm telling you, the opportunity to redeem and restore entire communities is possible. You know what? Jesus wouldn't call us to do it. And we can't restore every community, but could we start with one? And maybe we work out the kinks and figure some things out and learn from our mistakes. And then maybe we go to Austin Avenue in Durham and we start number two. And we have at least 8,000 probably gospel-centered churches in North Carolina. What if we could tell them what we learned so they, they can then from their church maybe redeem and restore our community. But for that to happen, uh, we have to become more intentional. It's not gonna happen just because we have good intentions. And let me just say this. A big part of the success is not gonna be determined by money. I am 100% confident that God pays for whatever he wants to happen. God will provide. I, I, I truly believe that. What's gonna make this as successful is gonna be based on our willingness to get our hands dirty and to build some relationships, sometimes maybe outside of our comfort zone. Because I'm telling you, what really generates compassion in us and what makes it effective and what makes it ongoing is a relationship. We heard earlier about the Watoto. Laura and I, at one time, we were, we were, we were supporting 
seven orphans, some in the Central African Republic, some in Uganda. And when you do that, you, you learn their names, you learn all about them, you get involved in their life. I'll never forget the day we received notification that one of the orphans that we were supporting died. It broke our heart. We lost part of our family. But it's gonna require us to get involved in those kinds of things. See, for example, when you go down to Southeast Raleigh and you meet with a student after school to tutor them, maybe to help them with reading. By the way, let me give you a statistic. Prisons in America are planned on third grade illiteracy. Do the research. They look at schools, they discover what third grade illiteracy and they determine that's how much prison space we're gonna need for the future. We can do something about that. But when you go down to, and meet with a kid after school and help them become better readers, or you sit down with someone and you teach them a job skill, or maybe you sit down with a single mom and say, this is how you can live within a budget. Or, or we, get, we get couples in the community involved and re-engage, or you know, a man-to-man iron sharpening iron. We're, we're challenging each one to be better fathers and to stay in the home. I'm telling you, when you're doing that, that individual's gonna become more than just a face in the crowd. You're gonna get to know their name. And I'm telling you, when you know their name, that's when it gets dangerous. I know I've probably told you the story, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. Years ago, a huge church in Chicago invited Laura and I up for a meeting, and they put us in this beautiful hotel on Michigan Avenue, and I mean, I was like, wow, we were just blown away, right? They flew us up, they put us in there and, and, and for a meeting, and the meeting wasn't to that evening, and so we got there around lunch, and so we went out to lunch, and of course, Michigan Avenue was there, and Laura's like, oh, I wanna shop, I wanna shop. I said, you go shopping. Don't spend any money, but you go shopping. And uh, I hung with her for about three minutes, but then I saw a Ghirardelli's. And I am just a sucker for a Gillardelli's hot fudge Sunday, and it was a beautiful day in September, and it was nice and cool there in Chicago, and they had outside tables. I said, honey, you just go ahead and have a time. I'm gonna go over here and get me a Ghirardelli's hot fudge Sunday. So I went in and I ordered it, and they gave you the little metal thing with the number on it. I came out and I put it on my table, and while I was inside, a homeless woman had come and sat at the table beside me. And you could tell she was homeless. It was obvious she was wearing everything that she owned. And I sat there and observed her, and she, she dug through her bag, and she... She pulled out a yogurt container, I'll never forget this. And I don't know if it's a yogurt she had originally or one she got out of the trash, but she took her finger and she just was getting what, whatever little bit of yogurt she could get and she was, and as she looked up, she saw me looking at her and it was just an awkward moment. And I said, hi. And she kind of nodded, I said, I just ordered a hot fish Sunday. would you like one? And she didn't know what to say, you could tell. And finally she said, well, well, sure. So I went in, I ordered one. I brought her number out, set it on her table, went back and sat at my table. The waitress came out, brought them both at the same time, sat hers down. I thought it was so cute when they sat down her hot fudge Sunday, she took her napkin, she put it in her lap, you know. And I looked at her and I said, do you mind if I come over there and eat with it? Don't, I'm, I'm not weird or anything, not that weird, but you know. And she says, sure. And she told me her name, Vivian. I'll never forget it. And she told me her story. She was from Iowa. She'd been a school teacher. Always struggled with alcohol, but had remained sober till her husband had an affair. And he left her for someone else. And her life began to unravel and she got more and more engaged in the addiction and she eventually lost her job. Her family confronted her, wanted her to go to rehab. She just didn't want to go. She refused to go, so they kind of turned their back on her tough love stuff. Through a series of circumstances, she ended up in Chicago homeless. So we sat there and we chatted and we finished our hot flesh Sunday and it wasn't long after that that Laura came by and 
we said bye. I introduced Laura to her and we headed off. And I tell you what, I went to bed that night. I'm t- I've never lost sleep over a homeless person in my life. But that night in that expensive hotel room, I thought, hmm, wonder where Vivian's sleeping tonight. Wonder if Vivian actually got a good meal today. I wonder if where she's staying is safe tonight. I'm telling you, when you learn a name, it changes everything. Let me tell you something. The great challenge of compassion is to figure out a way as Christians to do what we really say we believe. Because I believe this with all my heart. I believe there are so many miracles out there in homes and streets and schools just waiting to happen. And sometimes it happens by just doing something as simple as meeting someone and learning their name. So we're going to provide you the opportunity. And I know that a lot of us say the right things about compassion. But let's be honest, we live in a broken world right now. Where there's a lot of people who are just waiting for somebody to actually do something about it. And we can't do everything. And we can't save everybody. But I will tell you this, the way God has blessed Hope Community Church... We can do a whole lot more. Maybe a good step for you this weekend would be just say, you know what? I'm going to sponsor one of those orphans. I'm going to get to know their name. I'm telling you, you will be blessed more than they will be. And it will impact your life. But we have to start somewhere. So things are going to change around hope. And I'm happy about it. I think hope has always been a church of inclusion. Acceptance. It's reflected on our elder board. It's certainly reflected among our staff. It's reflected by the people that attend our campuses. But boy, we can, we can do so much better. But we have to be more intentional. And so that's where we're going to go. And that's where I'm going to lead. And I hope you're going to follow. Confucius say, he who thinks he's following, leading, but looks over his shoulder and no one's following, is only taking a walk. Don't leave me out there walking, okay? I believe you're gonna follow. God, thank you for being such a good God. Thank you for your, the bounty that you have poured out on this, just free property that you gave us. Buildings that you've radically reduced the cost of. Just one good thing after another. Your hand of blessing has been on us. God, we're gonna be held accountable for how we steward what you gave us. There's some hurting people right in our backyard, right on our doorsteps, right in our community, whose lives are broken, who are hurting. And we have the answer with the gospel. But it can't just be the gospel. We have to bring the compassion. Open the doors that need to be opened Do what only you can do. Give us the wisdom that we don't even possess to pull this off. Because, Father, at the end of the day, you're leading and we're following. And where you move, that's where we want to move. Father, we look forward to what you're going to do through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his wonderful name. Amen. Good to see you guys.